We will be taking our reading from Romans 8, verse 31 to 39. And it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered it over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Now, who will separate us from the love of Christ? With tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, we have been basically talking about the context of suffering and God's purpose in suffering and how God basically hopes to, once through the Apostle Paul, is wants to give us a comfort in our sufferings, give us hope basically in our suffering. And last time we looked at how we are basically sure that we can go through sufferings and we know that the suffering will not end in shame but in glory. That is by looking at the past generations that have gone ahead of us, looking at the, how God brought them through suffering, true to glory. And this, that image basically comes to its climax in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, who endured the cross and the shame that came with it for the joy that was set before him, and he was exalted at the end of the day. Now, we are going to break down this text basically into four points the first one is nothing withheld second one is no charge against us the third one is no condemnation and the fourth one is no separation now nothing withheld this uh, and it says god is for us like verse 31 it says then what will we say to these things if god is for us what who can be against us what is paul trying to say here Paul is saying because God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and accord according to his purpose, then these things are not against us. If God is for us, he controls all things, then all things are for us, not against us. Basically, that's what Paul is trying to say here. He's saying that God is the one in control of all these things that are going on. Now, there's no way we cannot say these things are against us because we are on God's side, basically. We are on the Lord's side in all these things. So, if God is on our side and we are on God's side, then it means that God is going to control things, basically, in our favor. God is going to control things for our good. So, then what we say to these things? And the obvious answer is that if God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is basically nothing. Nothing can be against us. Because all things, basically, are being controlled by God. 
And if all things are being controlled by God, then there is obviously nothing that can be against us because we are God's basically. We are God's own people. We are his chosen people. We are his elect, as Paul will go down to say. Now, he says in the next verse, Indeed, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he know also graciously with him give us all things? Now, he's not putting in contrast to say basically that, how can we know that basically there's nothing against us? How can we know basically that God is for us? And it shows us basically in God's doing in his own son, basically. In, he uses the word basically and says, He who did not spare his own son, basically. Spare means to refrain, to forbear, and in, resp- in, in respect to hard dealing. God did not refrain his son from suffering, basically. Or from from so he did not save his son from tribulations or from punishment, but he gave up his son basically to suffer wrath for our sins. So God is saying, if he did not spare his own son from suffering, how would he withhold suffering from us too? That is the logic, yes, because some people have this kind of mindset and say that how can we as Christians suffer? That if Christ has suffered for us basically. Then how can we suffer again? How can we suffer what Christ has already gone through for us? But suffering basically was what Christ went through as an example for us, basically. And the Bible teaches us basically that Christ suffered for us when it wasn't intended for him. He didn't suffer for his own sins, he suffered for our own sins. How much more we who are evil, basically, we who are meant to bear our own sins. How would you not say that we are not fit to suffer? But Christ, who was innocent, basically is fit for suffering, but we are not fit for suffering. It doesn't make sense. And the Bible actually teaches that suffering is a gift from God. Philippians 1.29 says this very clearly. It says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. So there's if if you have put your faith on Christ Jesus, on behalf of Christ, then it comes basically that you have been given the opportunity to also suffer with Him. So the two go together. There's no such thing as basically I'm offering you basically the gift, the opportunity to believe in me, but you can do without suffering. Suffering is an optional extra. No, He said. As I'm giving you this gift, as I'm giving you an offering, basically, which is Christ Jesus, I'm giving you the opportunity to believe in Christ Jesus. And I'm also giving you the opportunity to suffer for him, basically. Those are the two that are going together. So you have to count that cost. If I'm to trust in Christ Jesus, am I going to, ready for the suffering that is to come after? If you are not ready, then there's no need to put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to count the cost before following the Lord Jesus Christ. And suffering is part of the cost. So God has given us the opportunity not only to believe in Christ Jesus, but also to suffer with Him. And there are so many things that God has given us freely in Christ Jesus. God gave us freely His Son. His Son. He gave us freely the Holy Spirit. Basically, through Christ Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit that Christ promised, basically, that when He's exalted, the Holy Spirit will come and dwell with the church. So God has given us the Holy Spirit to help us to live the life of Christ here on earth. 
That is a precious gift that God has graciously given us that we did not deserve, we did not work for. This is a free gift God gave us. There are so many things. The Bible also talks about what eyes have not seen or ears have not heard and it has not even entered into the heart of man. These are the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But how can we know these things? We know these things through the spirit that God has revealed. So through God's spirit, basically, he reveals these things to us. The things that God has freely given to us in Christ Jesus, we can be able to know them through God's spirit within us. And we've been, he also made us know, basically, that he has made us inheritors of his kingdom. God has given us the opportunity, basically, to be, to have inheritance of the kingdom of God. That we are able to reign with Christ Jesus. We are able to be heirs with Christ Jesus. Co-heirs with Christ. So when you are in Christ, basically, you have an inheritance that is reserved for you in heaven. At the time, it's going to be revealed. So these are the things that God has freely given to us in Christ Jesus. So these are basically to show you basically that God is truly for you. He gave his son up for you. And Paul says, he who did not spare his own son. And it's not like I said, we tell the son from suffering. He also gave him up for us all. This was the benefit that he gave him up for us all. So, what does Christ mean? Yeah, uh, God, uh, Paul mean here. Yeah. Paul is basically saying that God gave Christ Jesus for us all. God delivered him over for us all to be crucified. We see this in basically Luke chapter 24 verse 7 and 20. It says the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. And they crucified him. So basically, and Romans 4.25 also says that it was delivered over because of our transgressions. So for our own sins, basically, Christ died. So when men basically were delivering, from this text we see that it was men that delivered Christ to the hands of sinners for him to be crucified. But in this work that men were doing, it was God that was also doing it. Men sentenced him. God also sentenced him. It was not basically men doing basically. Men did it of their own free will and they were totally responsible for the sins of delivering Christ over for death. But it was still God that was doing this basically in the sovereignty. And these are things that we cannot understand. It almost seems like, how can I be saying that I'm doing something and it's still God that is doing this thing at the same time? It almost seems like a contradiction. And this is why we always have this paradox between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. But it was God that was walking through all these things. And it was basically for our sins. And this guy, Paul is here, is trying to get us back into theology. And understanding that the basis for us saying that God is for us and they can notice against us is the proof this guy in the doctrine of the cross, the doctrine of the atonement. Christ dying for our sins, basically. Christ being suffering for the wrath of God for our sins is a proof or fact of the love of God that God is truly for us and there can be nothing against us. Even this matter of man doing it and God doing it, Peter puts it more clearly. 
in uh, Acts 2.23, said this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to the cross by the hands of Godless man and put him to death. So this man was delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. So it's God that was doing all these things on our own behalf. So don't just look at the cross basically as something that men just did or basically as a mother. This was something that God had planned from the ages that Christ would do. And in all these things, basically, it's not God that is actually doing all these things. Christ is also doing them himself. It was also Christ that did this too. Christ said, I lay down my life and I take it up again. So he was in total control of his own life. No one could take his life from him. And Christ also said in John 18, 11 to Pilate that he will have no power to crucify him unless that be given to him from God, from above, basically. That Pilate will not have the power to crucify him, to kill him, to put him to death, unless it has been given to him from above. So if God didn't determine this, Pilate will not be able to do that. So we have to recognize that God's hand was in the death of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, tells us that it was God's will to crush Jesus Christ and cause him to suffer for us, for our own transgression. It was God's will. So if we can see God's hand in the death of Jesus Christ, in the cross, in the atonement, then we can truly know that God is truly for us. If he could do this to his only begotten son, to his only begotten son, then Paul goes on to say, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How will he not give us all things? That's what Paul says. So if you can basically find what God did in the cross, then you'll be able to understand that God can truly give you all things. If a man can kill his son for you, then <laughs> that, that, that is, I'm not saying God is a man, <laughs> don't uh, misinterpret me here. I'm just saying, using an analogy, basically. If a man can kill his son for you to come out of prison, then imagine what the man can do for you. Imagine that when the man withhold anything from you, it will give you all gifts. If he can, if someone can kill their own child for you, then you should know basically that there's nothing this person can withhold from you. It's and this thing basically alludes basically to Abraham. Abraham killing his son Isaac, and God said, "You have not withheld your son from me." If Abraham could sacrifice his son Isaac for for God, then God basically knew. He said, "Now I know." God said, now I know. Now I know that you truly trust me. Now I know that you are truly for me. Now I know that you truly love me. When Abraham could sacrifice his son for God, then God knew that this man was truly all in for him. And God stopped him basically from killing his son. And that was basically a foreshadowing of what God would do in Christ Jesus to show his love for us. 
So Abraham wanted to kill Isaac was showing his love for God. That he truly trusted God. That God was able to raise his own child from the dead. And in that same way, God was showing his love for us, basically, in Christ Jesus. I truly hope by God's grace we'll be able to get this. And we can know that God graciously gives us all things with Christ Jesus. On the basis that we, of what we have seen in him doing to his son. Him not sparing his son, but giving his son for us all. Now the second point, no charge against us. And Paul says in verse 33, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one justifying. God is the one justifying. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? And Paul is basically speaking to the end time judgment. Basically, that who is going to bring in the future an accusation against God's elect. Is it Satan that is going to bring an accusation? Is it our own acts that is going to bring an accusation against us? Or is it our enemy, uh, enemies of God that is going to bring a, a charge against God's elect? God's elect basically means God's chosen ones. People that he has set apart. And basically Paul says, the answer is basically God is the one justifying. God is the judge. And if God is the judge, how can someone bring a charge against us? God is for us, basically. And God is basically the one doing the justifying. And this justifying is present continuous tense, basically, that God is justifying us as we go on believing. And all these things, basically, based on the resurrection of Christ Jesus, basically. If Christ had been raised, Christ basically paid for our justification. Romans 4.25, it says, He was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised for our justification. So Christ's resurrection was a proof of our justification. That's why it's very right to say when someone asks you, where were you justified? You could basically say I was justified 2,000 years ago. So Christ was raised for our justification, for justification for the whole world. But you cannot tap into that justification unless you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you uh, put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then do you appropriate the blessings of justification for yourself? Then do you apply the justification to yourself? So as we go on trusting in the Lord, uh, in Lord Jesus Christ, God goes on justifying us. And the court, God based on saying, declared righteous, declared righteous, declared righteous, all throughout your lifetime. As you go on trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, God basically keeps on declaring righteous, declaring righteous. So if you are going to uh, keep on trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, then no one can bring a charge against you. You are God's elect. You are God's chosen one. You are one that God has set apart from the world unto himself. You have been called according to his purpose. And Paul goes on to the next point, no condemnation. And he's saying, who is the one condemning? In verse 34, who is the one condemning? And this guy, this is the present continuous tense, that there's something that is actually condemning us in the present continuous tense. 
There are people who may be trying to condemn us. The Satan may be trying to condemn us. Our own hearts may be trying to condemn us. Sometimes our deeds may be trying to condemn us. And Paul is basically saying that, who is the one condemning? Then he answers that question and says, Christ Jesus is the one having died. Rather, having been raised, who being at the right hand of God and who is interceding for us. So Paul is now saying that there can be no condemnation presently for us, not only about the future judgment time in the eschatological judgment, but he's saying presently, as we're going on in our life here on earth, there's now no condemnation for us. Why? Because of Christ's work in his death, burial, and resurrection. Christ's ascension, Christ's intercession for us. So the gospel is the basics for why we cannot be condemned at the present moment. And remember, Paul basically said that it's not only in this gospel that you believe to be saved. You also continue in this gospel. You stand in this gospel to continue being saved. So you have to go on believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to continue being justified, to avoid going on condemned, being condemned. So as you, you are being condemned, God is justifying you as you go on trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what is underlined in all these things. God, Paul Bison bringing the theology basically and saying that we have to understand Christ's work in the death, burial, and resurrection. You have to believe that Christ truly died. He was buried and he rose again. Because if, and the resurrection is very, very crucial to the Christian faith. If Christ was not raised, your faith is basically in vain. You have not been justified. So, in Christ's resurrection, was God declaring Christ to basically be right? And the whole world were wrong about Christ Jesus. That's what God was doing in Christ Jesus. Because they murdered Christ Jesus basically for blasphemy. But God came to vindicate this man that he is truly God in his resurrection. So we have to understand Christ's work in his death, burial, and resurrection. And believe that to be able to appropriate justification into our life. And as we go on trusting in Christ Jesus, God goes on justifying us. And we cannot say there is now no condemnation presently for us in Christ Jesus. So no one can be condemning us. So we have to be careful basically to differentiate between condemnation and conviction because sometimes basically some people bring some form of conviction of sin in our life and we basically say these people are condemning us when in reality they are not condemning us so we have to put those thoughts in our head basically now another point Paul bases this on is in Christ's ascension and he says that Christ who is being at the right hand of God and sometimes we ask basically, where has Christ been for 2,000 years? Nobody knows where he has been. But he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. So what does the ascension, what does being at the right hand of God mean for us? What does it mean for us? How, how does it apply to 
that we cannot be judged against in this our present life. What does that mean for us, the, the exaltation of Christ? First of all, this matter of the right hand of God, it was first understood by the Jews what Christ was meant by this. In Matthew 26, verse 24, Christ said, You have said also, Jesus replied, But I said to all of you, From now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. So sitting at the right hand of God means that Jesus Christ is God. And for them, this would have alluded to the vision, Daniel's vision in Daniel 7 verse 13 to 14. He said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was like one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not, never be destroyed. And today, basically, in, the Christ, in Christendom, we have people who deny the deity of Christ Jesus, but they don't understand how essential the deity of Christ Jesus is to our faith. I can say basically on the basis of scriptures and what scripture says that if you don't believe in the deity of Christ, there's no way you can be saved. The deity of Christ is very essential because John basically says at the end of the gospel, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and by believing in this name, that is how you go on having life. So if you do not believe that Jesus Christ is God, there's no way you can be saved, there's no way you can have eternal life. That is very, very essential to the Christian faith. And Christ's ascension, praise God, proves that is God. And which goes back to the point. God is for us. So who can be against us? If Christ Jesus basically is God, then Christ Jesus cannot judge against us. Because he himself died for us. So he cannot judge against us as God trusting on his, uh, in his work. In his death, burial, and resurrection. So his exhortation basically proves that even Christ Jesus is for us. He's our advocate. So he's God. God the Father is God. And all part of the Trinity. And they are all for us. And that's in this means basically. Christ's ascension basically means Christ has authority. Psalm 110 verse 1 to 2. It says the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend his, your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So this means basically, that Christ has authority. Christ is sovereign over his enemies. So, if Christ is basically has dominion over his enemies, all his enemies are at his footstool, so who can bring any condemnation against us? We are on God's side. So, every person that is Christ's enemy is our own enemy. And if it's our enemies that want to bring condemnation against us, Christ is for us. So, in the moment someone makes himself our enemy, basically, he's making himself Christ's enemy. And 
Christ basically said, whatever you have done to this burden of mine, you have done also to me. Remember when Christ and uh, Paul had an encounter with Christ Jesus, say, Saul, Saul, why has that persecuted me? And Paul, the best guy, did not persecute Christ Jesus himself. He persecuted the church. And best guy, if he was touching the church, he was touching Christ Jesus. So anyone that is condemning us is basically condemning Christ. So if Christ cannot be condemned, then how can we be condemned? That's what Paul is saying. If Christ cannot be condemned, how can we be condemned? Christ has been exalted to the right hand of God. And Christ basically says we are going to reign with him, sharing this is authority. We are going to reign in, 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 on the earth basically. He's going to give us this uh, scepter that we are going to rule with him on the earth for a thousand years. We will become overcomers and endure to the end. So the Lord Jesus Christ ascended to sit at the right hand of God in heaven. That is where he is presently. So after being declared to be the Son of God, empowered by his resurrection from the dead, Acts 2 to 30 basically puts this more clearly. It says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies for your foot, for your, uh, a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom he crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So Christ's exhortation means that Christ Jesus Christ is uh, Lord. And every knee must bow, and every tongue confess that it is Lord. So Christ being um, exalted means that he is Lord over your life. There is no such thing as someone that is uh, having a Christ that is just a savior. But it's not a Lord over your life. That is not in control over your life. So basically, if you are submitted to Christ Jesus, there is no way anyone can bring any condemnation to you. If Christ is the Lord of your life, there is no condemnation for you presently. You just leave it out. Live out the life of Christ in you. Do what Christ says. And you won't find any condemnation, even in this present life. In Acts 5.31, it means that Christ is our is Prince and Savior too. Christ is the Savior of the whole world. He died for the sins of the whole world. He came to take away the sins of the whole world. So Christ's exaltation means that He is Prince and Savior. Ephesians 1 to, uh, verse 20 to 22, it means that Christ is head over everything for the church. So Christ has dominion over everything in the world for the church, including the church, the angels for the church. So Christ has dominion, a headship or rulership over everything in the world for the church. So all these things are for our benefit. So whatever Christ has dominion over is what He can graciously give to us that are in Him. So all these things are for our benefit. Christ's rotation is for our benefit. Forgiveness, basically, that Christ gives us is part of the benefit of his exaltation. 
He humbled himself and he was exalted to the right hand of God. So the forgiveness that we receive is benefit of Christ's exaltation. Corinthians 3.1, it also means that we are seated with Christ Jesus in heavenly places. So we are to set our mind on things above, not on earthly things. We are to set our mind on things above and not on things of this world. On the things that are eternal. So we have to have eternal perspective of things. And not just looking at the year and now uh, trying to uh, live your best life. Or people will say that you only live life once, then live the best out of it. We have to look at things from the eternal perspective. Because we are seated in heavenly places. We are no longer seated in earthly places. We are seated where Christ is, spiritually. That is where we are. We are in heavenly places, spiritually. And I need to warn you basically of the welfare that is going on in heavenly places. Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers which are in heavenly places. So that is why you feel the form of spiritual welfare when you go into the place of prayer. There are too many things that stop people basically want to pray. So in the moment you enter into prayer, the moment you enter into that throne of grace, you are entering into the sphere of spiritual welfare. Where you see principalities and powers fighting against you. And that is why there is so much uh, hold back from Satan to stop us from praying. He doesn't want us to basically come into the spiritual warfare. So that is why there is a fight between Satan and us to stop us from praying, to stop Christians from being steadfast in the, or fervent in prayers. So we must recognize that this is where we are seated. And in that understanding, we can know that there is truly spiritual welfare in that realm. We are seated in every places. That is why we can understand. That is why we can believe in spiritual welfare. Because the spiritual welfare actually goes on in the heavenly places where we are seated in with Christ Jesus. So we need to understand all these things and take them from the eternal perspective. It also means that for us, purifications of sins, we can be cleansed from our sins. Christ is our high priest, who offers gifts and sacrifices for us. He offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. For him to sit at the right hand of God, it means he had to endure the cross, scorning its shame. So Christ offered one sacrifice, which is his own life for sins, for all time. It was an innocent life. This is what we call the substitutionary atonement. It suffered for us on the cross. It was a substitution. It took our suffering when we were meant to take it, take the penalty basically for our sins. Christ took it for us. It was a substitution for us. And it was one sacrifice basically for all time. So we don't need to go on sacrifice, making any sacrifices for sins anymore. Christ is a sufficient sacrifice for the atonement of the world. Paid for the sins of everyone. But to apply that atonement, you have to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his death, burial, and resurrection for your sins and justification. To appropriate all the benefits of forgiveness and holiness. Paul also says Christ walk in intercession. So Christ is interceding for us. 
Hebrews 7 25 makes this very clear. He said, Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So Christ is our high priest. He is making uh, appeals. He is pleading for us, making petitions for us. For all transgressions. So his intercession work is what makes him to be able to save forever those who come to God through him. So what Christ is basically doing basically in, uh, in heaven basically is, is interceding for each of us. That all of us, none of us will fall away. That we will all be saved completely to the end. So for all time, Christ is basically... Because of his intercession work. That is why he's able to save completely. So since Christ went to heaven 2,000 years ago, since he ascended back to heaven, he has been interceding for everyone who will come to faith in him, who will come to God's dream. That's what makes him to be able to save forever. So Christ will keep on interceding for us till we are safe in glory. So if Christ is interceding for us, no one can condemn us. And we have to understand that if Christ basically isn't doing all these things, then we can be condemned. If Christ never died, he was never buried, or he rose again, he never rose again. If Christ never ascended, if Christ is not interceding for us, then we cannot be sure that we are not going to be condemned. So if you take the, the gospel from Christianity, you are basically in condemnation. Anyone that does not believe in the gospel is basically condemned. So believing the gospel basically takes away condemnation from you. And we have to understand that. So as we go on believing the gospel, we go on being justified and condemnation is taken away from us. Now, Paul says, no separation. No separation. Verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? The love of Christ basically means Christ's love for us. It doesn't mean our love for Christ. Christ's love for us because our love for Christ stems from Christ's love for us. Our love for our neighbor stems from Christ's love for us or God's love for us. So then who can separate us from the love of God? Separation basically means to put asunder, to divorce. Basically, in Matthew 19, verse 6, Christ uh, used it there, say, So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So we have been married to Christ Jesus. You also see this in Paul's uh, uh, epistle to the Ephesians, Ephesians 5, when he uses the analogy of marriage. So we have been united with Christ Jesus. And if we have been united with Christ Jesus, who can divorce us from the love of Christ? We have been united with Christ Jesus in baptism. We are married to Christ, so who can divorce us from Him? What God has joined together, 
let no one put asunder. Let no man put us under. So no man can separate us from Christ Jesus. No man can separate us from Christ Jesus. So we have to understand this. Our union with Christ, that is why we cannot be separated from the love of God. So the, this, this is the point of the marriage with Christ Jesus. And we remember basically in the Old Testament, uh, how God married Israel in the covenant of the basically the covenant, the law of Moses and the tablets, basically. He said, I've shown forth you my grace, then for gratitude do these things. In the marriage covenant, and the people basically agreed to the covenant that this is what they are going to do for God as a form of gratitude for him saving them from Egypt. And in Christianity, grace, religion is grace, gratitude is ethics. So the way we give God gratitude is basically what we do. What we do is gratitude, it's not what saves us. It's gratitude for what God has done for us in salvation. How God has shown His grace or given us His grace in Christ Jesus. That is how we give gratitude to God. So nothing can separate us from the union of Christ. And that is why basically some people try to say that God has forsaken uh, Israel. God has replaced um, Israel or the church has replaced Israel. And that is not true. If the church has replaced Israel, then how are we not sure that nothing can separate us from the love of God? How are we not sure that somewhere, something else will replace us later on? If something has divorced the union of God and Israel, how are we not sure something will be able to divorce, divorce us from Christ Jesus later on? If we are unfaithful. So, the understanding of this basically the union of Christ Jesus basically makes us to understand that nothing shall separate us from the love of God. And Paul basically lists some things. He says, with tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Let me look at the word this tribulation. What does this tribulation mean? Tribulation basically means affliction, anguish, trouble, distress. In just 127, tribulation there means the pain that a widow is going through for the loss of her husband. So if they are going through the loss of a family member or the loss of a close relative, that is a tribulation for you. And Paul is basically saying that such kind of things doesn't even separate us from the love of Christ. That even in the midst of our loss of a family member or the loss of a relative or someone close to us, Christ still loves us. Even though at that moment you may not feel it, you may not believe it, is that is a fact that Christ truly loves us. Luke 8 13 also tells us basically that people can fall away because of tribulation. Luke 8 13 says, Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. And the reason why they fall away is basically the word of God did not abide in them. They did not keep the word of God in their hearts. That's why in the times of tribulation they fall away. 
So basically, as we go on abiding in God's word, as God's word goes on abiding in us, then we can be sure that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. We can hold on to that even in the time of tribulation. And in the early church, they, they were prepared for tribulation. Tribulation means to crush. It means to press together. It means real hardships. Martin Luther said something about tribulations. He wrote, whatever virtuous tribulation finds us, whatever virtue, sorry, tribulation finds us in, it develops more fully. If anyone is carnal, weak, blind, wicked, irascible, haughty, and so forth, tribulation will make him more carnal, weak, blind, wicked, and irritatable. On the other hand, if one is spiritual, strong, wise, pious, gentle, and humble, it will become more spiritual, powerful, wise, pious, gentle, and humble in the midst of tribulation. So tribulation basically amplifies what we are truly, what we truly are. That is what tribulation amplifies. Tribulation was a preparation that the editors actually believed. It's also use of outward difficulties, emotional stress, sorrows which weighs down a man, a man's spirit, like the sorrows and burden of his heart. It also includes disappointment which can crush out the life of someone. It can crush out the life of someone. So, Depression, basically, is, is part of the tribulation that we may face in this life. And our Lord Jesus Christ promised us tribulation. He said these things, John 16, verse 13, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. So in Christ, basically, we have peace, even in the midst of tribulation. We can take courage, we can find comfort that Christ has overcome the world. Then we are going to become overcomers in Christ Jesus. Paul basically said in Acts 14 verse 22, he says, through many tribulations, we enter into the kingdom of God. Tribulation is part of the Christian life. It's a normative that we should understand that it's part of the Christian life. It's not something we have to be shocked in. Verses 3 13, he says, so that no one will be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourself know that we have been destined for tribulations. We have been destined for tribulations and we need to understand this. This is what God has prepared for us. He has granted us as a gift tribulations. But we should also have an understanding that even in the end, tribulations is not going to win. Those who have some given us affliction in this life, those who have given us uh, tribulation in this life, are not going to go scot-free. God is going to repay them at the coming of Christ Jesus. But tribulation also has some eternal purposes. Tribulation brings about perseverance. It brings about character and hope. Romans 5 verse 3. It says, and not only this, but we also rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. You cannot know that you can persevere unless you have actually gone through tribulations. And you saw basically of those people, when, they, when the test came away, came, this guy, they fell away from the faith. 
So when these tribulations come and you persevere through tribulations, then you know that you can persevere. Then you know that you have perseverance. So it's tribulation that actually brings about perseverance. If you have not gotten an exam, how can you know that you, are, you truly know something or you have passed? Without an exam, there's no way you can pass on to the next stage. So tribulation is the exam that comes for the testing of our faith to show that our faith will be able to survive. That we cannot fall away. So tribulation brings about perseverance. And that perseverance changes our character, refines our character. Brings our character. And that's why the Bible actually says that those who have suffered the basic guys, most of the time they, they cease from sin. Those who have suffered with Christ, they cease from sin. The first without fall. And there's, there's something that actually happens now in suffering that actually perfects us, that refines our character. And uh, tribulations also bring about hope. Normally, as we are living our life now, we are not facing through any hardship, we are not facing any tribulations, we are not facing any persecution. But now we are not people that are hopeful. But in times of tribulation, you need hope. You need something to put your hand for to, to hold on to. If not, you are going to be have a shipwreck of the faith. If not, you are going to fall away. And what do you hold on to in tribulations? What is your hope in the times of tribulation? It's God's word. What God has said basically as a fact here that He is in control of all things. The dead bearer of resurrection, Christ's work of ascension, Christ's work of uh, intercession, basically it makes you believe that nothing can separate you from Christ's love, even in the midst of that tribulation. It gives you that hope that Christ is praying for you, even in the midst of this hardship that you are going through, and you will come through as an overcomer. Paul goes on to say distresses. Distress really means, uh, it means uh, confined space, narrowness, that you have been narrowed, you are put in a tight corner. So in those moments that you have been put in a tight corner, those moments cannot even separate you from Christ's love. Paul lists some other things. This guy says persecution. Persecution basically is the suffering that will go for Christ's sake. And we see our brethren in some places in all over the world currently that are being going through persecutions, that are being killed for their faith. That cannot still separate them from Christ's love. Even though they are going through all that. Famine, hunger, no food, plague. When you lose your job, basically, because of Christ, because you are a follower of Christ, when you lose your job, because you are not going to compromise on righteousness, and you cannot be able to feed yourself or your family, that doesn't separate you from Christ's love. That doesn't mean that Christ doesn't love you. Even in the midst of that, Christ still loves you, and nothing can separate you from Christ's love. Even the coronavirus that we are going through in the world now, COVID-19, cannot separate you from Christ's love. If you have been attacked or you have been afflicted by the coronavirus, that doesn't separate you from Christ's love. Nakedness simply means exposure. That doesn't separate you from Christ's love. Second Corinthians 11 verse 26 to 27. Peril means danger. He said, Paul said, I've been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, in dangers from robbers, 
dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers of the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. So even in moments where we are exposed, basically we don't have clothing and we are just exposed to the whole world, that doesn't separate us from the love of Christ. Even in the moment of dangers, we are basically afraid of kidnappers or someone trying to kill us. That doesn't separate us from the love of Christ. And what Paul is speaking here, basically, is from his own personal experience. Paul illustrates this in basically second. Uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8 to 9 is an illustration of tribulation. Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we are burdened excessively beyond our strength, that we even despaired of life. Indeed, we have the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we will not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So in all this affliction, Paul was almost depressed, even to the point of even giving up. And all these things were personal experience. Second Corinthians says were four to five. Paul says, but in everything commending ourselves as servant of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonment, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. Verse 8 By glory are dishonored by evil reports and good reports, regarded as deceivers yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold, who live as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. So even in the midst of these sufferings, Paul was still able to hold fast to God. He was still able to rejoice in sufferings. I could imagine Paul basically as one who was crying because of all the things that he must have gone through, but still in the spirit able to rejoice in these tribulations. How can we understand all this? Unless you have truly put your hope in God's word, unless you have put your foundation in God's word, that is the only way you can be able to rejoice in tribulations. That's why Paul can be able to say, No one shall separate us from Christ's love because he has experienced all this. And Paul goes to his point that, as it has been written, for your sake we are being put to death all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. And this is taken basically from. Psalm 42 verse 22. And Paul is basically saying that even the Old Testament saints, they suffered for Christ's sake. So these have been the pattern of God's people from time on. They've been suffering for Christ and these have not separated them from the love of Christ. You remember the last time we spoke about Moses suffering, basically wanted to suffer shame with the people of God rather than the pleasures of Egypt. We talk about how many were sown into for Christ's sake, for the gospel that they preached basically in the Old Testament, for the words that God gave them, the prophets of old, how many were killed because of God's word. So for Christ's sake, basically, we are being put to death. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 11 about himself. He says, for we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So even in as much as we are being persecuted, we are being killed, Christ's life is being manifested in our flesh. People are able to see the suffering of Christ even in our own self. We are the truth, we are the facts that Christ truly suffered. Our life is an example that Christ truly suffered for people's sake. Our life is basically the gospel. It's a picture of Christ's suffering, and they themselves can know that Christ suffered for them to believe in him 
and appropriate those sufferings to themselves, the benefits of salvation to themselves in this life and near on. And Paul goes on to say that, but in all these things, we are being more than conquerors through having, through Christ, having, through God having loved us. So in all these things, we are being more than conquerors. We overwhelmingly conquer, we come out as victors. Basically, what Paul is basically saying, saying that all these sufferings, all these tribulations, persecutions are basically acting as servants for us. Because they are all under our feet. We have conquered all of them all. They are basically acting as servants. And when you conquer something, basically, it becomes your servant. When you are beating someone, the person basically becomes your servant. The person basically is afraid of you. So all these tribulations and persecutions and peril and dangers, when you overcome them, basically, they act as servants, basically, doing the Lord's work for you. Basically, refining you and bringing the benefits that suffering brings to our life. And Paul says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, even when we die, we are not going to be separated from Christ's love. We are going to be in Christ's presence. Even in this our present life, with all the troubles that come with it. Angels, nor principalities, nor things present. Principality basically means um, authorities in the spiritual realm. It also means uh, rulers here on earth. Angelic authorities, human authorities. No matter how unjust they may be, or just they may be, sorry. That to us, they cannot separate us from Christ's love. No powers. Nor things present, nor things coming, things in the future, nor the things that we are facing presently. None of them can separate us. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other creation. No creation can be able to separate us from Christ's love. No other creation. If at all Paul couldn't even say more things than he wanted to say more persons, he basically says no other creation to conclude it all. We'll be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the love that Christ, uh, the, the love that God has shown to us in Christ Jesus, no one can be able to separate us from that love. And Paul says, I am persuaded. What made him to be persuaded is because he has gone through all these things. And he is convinced from the argument that truly, truly, nothing can separate us from Christ's love. Nothing, no one can separate us from Christ's love. And we have to believe that. Even when we go through all these things in our life here on earth, I believe that we ourselves will be persuaded by the argument that nothing can truly separate us from Christ's love. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our hope, you are our anchor. We pray, O Lord, for our brethren who are going through persecutions and suffering right now. I pray, O Lord, that they will not doubt your love for them in the midst of what they are going through. As many, O Lord, who are going through distress, through uh, depressions, through emotional stress, so Lord, we pray, Lord, that you will bring them comfort, you will strengthen them, that they will be able to have hope, that their characters will be refined, and the benefits of suffering will also come out in their life, O Lord. Father, let none of us, O Lord, doubt your love for us that you have shown for us in Christ Jesus. We pray, O Lord, that none of us will ever fall away, that when testings and trials come, our faith will be refined and tested and we will actually persevere through to the end because it is you that keep us. And when we come to the end in glory, O Lord, we thank you, O Lord, because you, O Lord, saved us truly from the beginning to the end. And to you, O Lord, be all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.